Ignition sequence starts. Three, two, one. Um, welcome to University, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about Earth and the unknown. I'm AJ Perrin. With me, as always, is... Judson Martin. Judson Martin. And did you know that touche, the phrase, comes from people who fence? And when you hit the other person, they would say touche, like you touched them. I did not know that. Yeah. So when you say, like, oh, touche, it's because they got you. Dang. Okay. I didn't know that. I felt like we'd start the episode off on a fact. I How did you like that? didn't really see that coming at all. <laughs> I was a little taken aback by it. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm just trying to like, I want to keep things interesting for you, Judd. Thank you. You know? You know? You just, nice. you just need constant stimulation. So I figured if I give you a really nice fact, that might can keep you interested for the rest of the episode. I'm already interested. This is my stuff. Me too. Well, not like it's yours. <laughs> like it is your stuff. Okay. Because you do the research in the hypersonic Space things? It's hypersonic it's air? It's hypersonic. Yeah. Not really space, but... Not space, just like aerospace. Yeah, just, yeah, it's aerospace, yeah. and it's space. How fast is hypersonic? Five times the speed of Five sound. Five times the speed of sound. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Anything. we won't be talking about hypersonic most likely this episode, but we will be talking about supersonic speeds this episode, because today we're talking about space flight. Not only a little bit about space flight, but also the history of space flight, specifically in the U.S., so how we got from the start of the Cold War to now and how things have changed. Yeah. And there's a lot to cover, so this is just an overview episode, but I'm sure in the future we'll get to dive into all of these subjects in depth, hopefully. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Very cool. Um, Judd, I just want to check in with you quick. Like, How are you doing, man? I'm doing lovely. It's a good day? It's a great day because we're talking about space flight. The stuff that really gets you going. Yeah, that's really gets me going. And Jeff Bezos. <laughs> And other billionaires and toilets in space and all that and more. Toilets in space? Toilets in space. I didn't know we were doing toilets in space. Yeah, all that Ooh. on today's episode, bro. Wow. Okay. Uh, quick note before we get started. If you haven't already, make sure to review our podcast on Spotify or whatever you're listening to. really helps us get out there. And it also, we like to hear back from you guys and see what you like and dislike about the show. Yeah. Anyways, let's get started. Judd, you are an aerospace engineer, so... You are the person I'm going to come to when I need a description of the basics of space flight. Basics, yeah. I can tell yeah. you basics. Please, please tell me, how does, how does flying in space work? And how is, it, how is it different from trying to fly, you know, here on Earth? Yeah. So first things first, um, flying here on Earth, if you were to go get on a plane today or whatever, um, you'd be flying through an atmosphere. And that's different than flying in space because there's no atmosphere in space. So that's right. the first thing. Um, so it's all about how we generate lift and that's, so that's like how the airplane flies up instead of just how it's different than a car, I guess. I don't right. know. How it gets off the ground. Yeah. So I don't think we want to go this far into it, but it's like, basically what's important is it's flying on earth is different than flying in space because here we have an atmosphere and we're, right. we're using different things to fly here versus in space. So in space, we can't. There's no air, and so we can't generate lift or movement through just going through the air. Right. We have to expel mass. So Literally, yeah. The idea of like a rocket is you're shooting mass out of the bottom, and then that, like if you throw something in space, your body is going to get pushed the other way. Yeah. 
Tell equal it. and opposite reaction. Exactly. Nice. I have a very, when we get into reaction control systems later, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about that idea that when you push in one way, it's going to send you the other direction, yep. which can be really helpful in space, but it also makes us have to make some very specific design choices. Yeah. Okay. So it's like a, it's an inelastic collision, I believe. Yeah. Is the correct words for it. All right. So keep, keep telling me more about this basics of space flight. You've told me what it's like here on earth. Obviously we're going to have like wings on a plane. That's how we're getting up. But now we have to expel mass instead to yeah. exit the earth's or exit the earth's gravity. So the idea of like a rocket is we have two big fuel tanks. So that's one thing people maybe don't know is that there's not one fuel tank on a rocket. There's two. So, or there's multiple types of fuel that we're using. So we have to have our regular fuel and that's what we're burning and combusting, but we also have to have an oxidizer. So um, you can't have fire without oxygen. You right. can't you can't have combustion reactions without oxygen. So we need oxygen to create a combustion create reaction. the combustion in space because exactly. once we get out of the atmosphere, there's, no air. There's no air. No that's, oxygen. You know, I didn't think about that idea that like that's the importance of the oxidizer is bringing oxygen with yeah. us when we go, so we can keep burning stuff. Yeah. In the future, you know, hopefully we get to the point where we can do. We talked about nuclear fusion that one time. Yep. Can you imagine bringing nuclear power into space flight so we can continue without the oxidizer? And we know, Judd, we talked about last episode, is it a hundred thousand dollars per pound to launch into space? Ooh. That's a really... I think it was more. I think it was 10,000. Okay. So it's $10,000 to launch one pound of something into space. Yeah. Basically... If we can have nuclear power instead, we can remove so much mass uh, from what we have to launch because fuel is so heavy. Well, yeah, but I mean, we might remove the mass or it'll just be better because we can fit more fuel. So we'll be able to go further and things like that. But hopefully we take up less space, but it's possible that like just the machines that are necessary to drive a nuclear reactor or something like that in a spaceship would take up a lot of mass as well. Um, yes and no. It's actually pretty small. It's a pretty small thing. It's no bigger than the normal rocket engine, really. Um, they're actually building it right now. So NASA... Oh, cool. Is it, is it nuclear fusion or nuclear fission? Nuclear fusion. The new stuff. The new stuff. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So they're... Essentially how it works is they're creating a bunch of heat with the, with the fusion, the nuclear fusion, and then they're running the uh, fuel through that, so some sort of liquid... Um, that's going to turn into a gas easy. So we heat it up into a gas. So that makes it go faster already. And then, so the whole idea behind a rocket engine, um, whether it's fu- nuclear or just the regular ones we have now, is mm-hmm. we have a, a high uh, volume zone and then it comes down to a bottleneck, a low um, surface area or a low area zone. And then, so when a fluid has to go through that, it accelerates and goes faster. Yeah. So that way, when it comes out the other end, it's going faster. It's kind of the same idea as the side pods on an F1 car. Sure. You know, the yeah. way it moves air through it, it's meant to make it go faster when it's coming out the other side. Yeah, so yeah. the idea is through, um, if you know the conservation of momentum, so that's mass times velocity. Um, when you increase velocity, then you increase the velocity of the other thing because the mass is actually going down from the rocket. Right. So the same amount of mass you're pumping out um, you're going to accelerate faster, basically. Right. If we increase the velocity of the fuel, we're also going to be increasing the velocity of the rocket. Nice. 
Yeah. Nice. So here's an interesting idea that I think I read. This had to be such a long time ago. Either it was in a popular science magazine or something when I was a kid. I was obsessed with the idea of this spaceship that maybe is not the most effective in design. Like it, in principle, this might take way too long to accelerate. But the idea is that once you get a spacecraft out into space and it's in a vacuum where there's, it's not affected by gravity of any other planets mm-hmm. and there's no forces acting on it, you could extend reflective surfaces on all sides of the spacecraft where you want photons to be bouncing off of. And because photons carry energy, it would transfer that energy, kinetic energy from the photon as it bounces off into the plane or the aircraft. And after enough time and after enough photons, you would start to move forward and there would be nothing slowing you down. So you could continue to move in a certain direction. I know, yeah, this is a real thing called a solar sail. Nice. Um, I think... I don't know for sure if it was, I think it was Carl Sagan's idea, um, who was a big science guy back in the day. Um, But yeah, the idea was that these photons that have a really, sure, it's a really, really small amount of mass, but they're moving really quick. So, and if you're not affected by anything else, you're, you're going to get pushed by that. So, yeah. So that's a way we could be traveling in space. You know, if you needed to go into cryogenic, like a stasis, right? You have to shut down. We could just pump out the solar sails and, you know, set sail across the galaxy. It'd, it'd take no fuel and. Cryogenics would be creepy, man. You like Let's, wake up and you're like in like a fluid and all that. I'm just not taking the chance that the guy who wrote the Python code that's supposed to wake <laughs> me up after T equals like 300 years. Is if that doesn't work, <laughs> if there's an error that pops up, nobody's there to, you know, debug that. I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm asleep for the rest of my life. For, I feel forever. Like it would be a mechanical issue versus like a. A technical issue like code. All right, um, Judd. One question I had about the fuel because we've been talking about fuel for the this for space flight. There is a difference in the kinds of fuels. We we sometimes use solid um, fuel and we sometimes use liquid fuel. Can yep. you tell me a little bit about why we choose one versus the other? So there's solid rocket boosters and then there's liquid rocket boosters. Um, so solid rocket booster is slightly different in the fact that once you light it, you can't stop it. So yeah, it keeps burning. Yeah, it's just gonna go. You you can't, can't control the amount of fuel that's being pumped into the quote unquote like engine or. Right? It's all in there. It's, and yeah, it's all it's in like one block essentially. You yeah. light something on fire and you don't have a fire extinguisher. You can't yeah. put it out. I don't know how else to explain. Right. But so you once you light that, it's it's a constant burn, um, and it's gonna go. But the nice thing about those are they're a little bit more predictable, and we know the amount of. It's going to have a constant amount of, well, not a constant amount of thrust, but it's it's easier to predict the amount of thrust it's going to produce than a liquid booster. Right. But we're pretty good at that now, and liquid boosters are a lot nicer because we can turn them on and off. Right. Uh, it doesn't have to burn constantly in a liquid booster. One thing I've read is that liquid fuel for rockets can be, in some cases, more dangerous. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah, can you tell me about that? So, like... These, um, I guess these gas tanks or fuel tanks or whatever are like extremely highly pressurized because you're trying to get, well, yeah, because the oxygen, so oxygen by itself is really reactive. It reacts with just about everything. And so when you have pure oxygen, it's dangerous just inherently, but you have it under super high pressure in these tanks because you're trying to fit as much as you can in the tank as possible. Yeah. 
And so if that tank ruptures or anything like that, um, it's going to be a big, big boom. A big boom. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So there are some pros and cons to using solid and liquid fuel, and there's different instances in which we're going to use solid or liquid fuel. Right. And exactly. I mean, even if there's not really a real way for the solid booster to like combust all at once, it would be more of like a slow controlled burn, I guess. Yeah. Not, I mean, not necessarily just if there was an issue in the fuel itself versus like something else went wrong. But so it's a little bit safer to use those solid boosters, but as far as the fuel is concerned, but very cool. What is Judd? Let's see. Another challenge of space flight is the fact that earth has gravity. And if we want to get to space, we have to break the gravity. So that's another challenge that, you know, that's another challenge that aerospace engineers have to go through is they have to predict based on the size of, you know, essentially the ship that they're flying and how much fuel they have and the yeah. the escape, you know, path. The escape velocity. If they're going to be able to get like out of yep. the orbit or not. So that was the biggest, I mean, that was the biggest challenge for a long time was just like escape velocity. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact velocity it is, but you got to be going... You got to be moving really quick. Um, yeah, and that's when those G's start hitting you, yep. and you're like pushed back in your seat, and they call it um, eyeballs in. No, really. Yeah, when that. when it's like three G's or so, that's like people say eyeballs in because you're you know, can push your head against the back of your seat essentially. So, yeah, yeah. That's okay. Very cool. Cool. Well, so as you can see, spaceflight is not an easy or no simple challenge. No. And so in this next section, we're going to look at how the U.S. and other countries, you know, in the 50s and 60s started to take on this challenge and where that's gotten us. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Judd, we all know about kind of the, well, I won't say we all, but a lot of people know about the 10-year challenge in 1961, JFK. Yeah. Right. He wants to put a man on the moon. And that's a big deal, right? Yep. Because we're trying to compete against another major player in spaceflight at the time, which is Russia. So Neil Armstrong, and then this is a quiz for you. Who's the other man that went on the moon in 1969? I don't know. Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, that's that's what I said. <laughs> uh, when they stepped out on the moon, that was considered the end of the space race. But a lot happened um, up to that point, and some of it is going to blow your mind. All right. Let's hear it, man. So very early on in the podcast, uh, when Cindy was here, we talked about at one point, I don't remember why. I think it was just uh, we were talking about specifically like the Voyager 1, Voyager 2 satellites, like um, just major milestones in space, uh, spacecraft. We talked about something called the V2 rocket. Yeah. Which is a really powerful, at least for the time, like really impressive uh, rocket by German engineers or Nazi scientists. Um, yeah. And they were capable of striking London, you know, in the in the... United Kingdom from the launch pad in the Baltic Sea in the latter years of the war. So we're talking like 43, 44, 45. All right. This V2 rocket was, I mean, the beginning of space flight. This was the rocket that yeah. enabled us to to really get going in space flight. But it was originally designed for war as a like a ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile. Yeah. Nice, nice acronym. Nice. You get bonus points for that one. Oh, yeah. So spoiler alert, Germany did not win World War II. <laughs> They lost, and German scientist Werner von Braun, he's the guy who was, you know, a big figure in charge of developing the V-2 rocket. He surrenders to the U.S. Army. And this guy essentially switches sides 
and along with other scientists that he brought with him fr that were captured um, from Germany, they essentially switch sides and bring this technical expertise and along with you know some of this technology to the United States and into New Mexico. Mm. Now, this program, many years later, would relocate to Huntsville, Alabama, which is now where we find, believe it or not, the Marshall Space Flight Center. The Soviets also have their own key player at this time, and his name is Sergei Korolev. Mm. So he's essentially the Soviet Union version of Werner von Braun. Sure. And so this guy also captures some German scientists, and so they also have some of this new technology and some of these new ideas from the V-2 rocket. Mm. And so now both of these key players in the United States and the Soviet Union are now working on spaceflight at the end of the war yep. instead of the V-2 missile, but using the same technology. So military leaders at the time are looking at this technology and saying, okay, well, clearly this has some capability to deliver warheads across the world. That's like the main idea from it. But other scientists who are uh, objectively smarter in my opinion, looking at it and they're saying, we can use this technology to send satellites to orbit the Earth yeah. and we can use it to explore outer space. Yeah. It doesn't take a genius to say that one of those is inherently cooler than the other, right? Oh, yeah. So we have had, since the completion of the space race, we've had decades of cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union and they ended up working together as well to build the International Space Station. But yep. before that, there were a couple decades of some intense headbutting. Oh, yeah. You ready to jump into it? The Cold War. Exactly. Let's do it. Must have been cold, man. Like, how cold do you think it really was? Bro, you're actually dumb. You're actually dense. <laughs> was it just like Your head is full of solid fuel like, right what now. What was going on? You, like, this is a slow burn I'm hearing. Like, was it below freezing? Like, below zero degrees? Like, what was happening? Okay. Anyway, so Sp <laughs> Sputnik. Sputnik is the first satellite that was ever sent into space. Yep. Unfortunately, this was not an accomplishment for the United States. It was an accomplishment for the Soviet Union. This was in October 1957. And Sputnik was like this round, essentially a sphere, yeah. with a couple antennas sticking off of it. It looked really weird. It looked like a jellyfish almost. I don't know. That's the one way. Or like a yeah. table. It yeah. looked like a table because it had the four legs. Yeah, four legs. And then it was like it was a, a sphere, sphere at the, the top. top. Yeah. Sort of like a table. Yeah, like an end table. You kind of get it, but if end tables weren't flat at the top. Yeah, if they just cut off half the sphere or something. I don't know. Right. So these signals that Sputnik um, sent out could be heard on radios across the world. So that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of American scientists who are kind of like grimacing right now, knowing that the yeah. Soviet Union has just uh, done this. So in 1958, we respond with the Explorer. That was our own. The problem is America's still kind of a step behind at this point, right? So now... The national anti-communism sentiment during this time is really helping to drive the desire to gain the technical edge, yeah. which is something that at the time was really, really pivotal in you know, the opening years of what spaceflight looked like. So now in 1958, after we had put up the Explorer satellite, uh, Congress passed the Space Act, which created a very important institution. And do you know what institution that was? NASA. Yeah, so that was 1958 when they finally flipped the switch. Yeah. Cool. So the Space Act has been passed. And the next goal, after we've sent, you know, Soviet Union and the United States have both sent up a satellite, what's the likely next step? If we can put technology in space, what else do we want to put in space? I mean, we want to put a human. Let's put a human in space. Yeah. Exactly. So the Soviets start the Vostok program, 
this is a secret to the public, which is different from the United States at the time, because when the United States responds with Project Mercury, this is very publicly known, because America wants to, one, continually establish this anti-communism sentiment, but show that the public spending that's being used to create NASA is doing something. Mm -hmm. So the Vostok program, uh, the secret one, is an interesting capsule that they were trying to send up people into space in. And this guy we've talked about before, Yuri Gagarin, right, Mm -hmm. as the first man in space, he was a Soviet, and in April 1961, he orbited Earth in Vostok 1. Now, the interesting thing about Vostok 1 is that it was a spherical capsule, and so it didn't require reorientation upon entry. It kind of just, like, launched him up there, (laughs) he orbited, and then he came down. So it's less, it's not really an explicitly pilot-controlled aircraft. I guess I didn't know that it was spherical because yeah. I don't know. One of the things, and we said we weren't going to talk about hypersonics, but on let's re-entry, talk about hypersonics. <laughs> on reentry, you they actually are you all. Well, you will be hypersonic going okay, cool. on reentry. So like five times the speed of sound. It's like I think on reentry it gets up to like fifteen or something. Like you get moving. Um, nice. Yeah. So I just think it's interesting that it was a sphere because at moving at that speed through the atmosphere, um, you usually don't necessarily want. You want different aerodynamics than like a different aerodynamical shape than right than a sphere because that's going to yeah. be hot. You're saying and create a lot of drag or it would be hot and that well the drag will create more heat because there's just more friction and things like that. But yeah, well, I guess we can say the Soviets did not know everything about spaceflight at this time. Yeah, in Project Mercury, the answer to this from the Americans, the publicly known one, in May 1961. So just a month later after Yuri Gagarin does his uh, orbit around Earth in Vostok 1 create uh, their response, which was a 15-minute suborbital flight. So we didn't quite get what the Soviets were able to get, which was a orbital flight. But the difference between this one and the Vostok program was that our vessels had a conic shape, which did require reorientation, which did render the person that was in control a true pilot. Yeah. So it's a little bit. <laughs> so we're going to take the technicality. Yeah, we're going to take the technicality. And maybe, that, maybe that's a half point. So was there like, did the Russians do anything? They did stuff with animals too first, right? Yes, Before that's another thing humans? about the Russian, Russians is that they commonly tested their technology with one. There's a very famous dog. Yeah, a dog and monkey too. And a monkey. Yeah, I think that was exactly. the two animals that they did, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, good uh, or good point. So now... We've put technology in space. We've put people in space. What is the next step to really shove it up Russia's behind? The moon. The moon. So in 1961, President Kennedy challenges NASA by the end of the decade to send a man to the moon and back. That's important too, I guess, because we can't just send people <laughs> nah, up there we and can say, leave him. Leave him. Thank he'll you for the out. win. It's yeah. just like the Martian. Like, he'll figure it out. He'll plant potatoes with his poop or whatever he did and <laughs> figure it out. Impressive movie and one we'll have to talk about in the future. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people actually think that was real. So we'll have to do a little bit of debunking. But no, the moon landing was fake, though. Okay, we're not going to get into that. Yikes. Um, Yikes. That was, a, that was a joke, by the way. No. That was not politically was correct. And real. if you're looking to sponsor us, don't listen. Um, okay. Soviets are looking at Project Voskhod now, which is they want to put three cosmonauts in space. So we're still in the early 1960s, mid-1960s. 
And so they actually were able to complete this, and they sent three cosmonauts to space and simultaneously had the first human spacewalk in March 1965. So, you know, NASA scientists are still pulling their hair out. Yeah. The Soviets were also simultaneously flying many unmanned cosmos missions. Uh, so they were either unmanned to find out more about the moon or what it's like to, uh, you know, prolong a flight for two weeks because it takes a long time to get to the moon. Yeah. So they were learning more about, you know, how do we use spacecraft for that long? And two, you know, what is it like to have species up there? So that's when they start using kind of the animals to get a sense of, you know, how the space is going to be treating its inhabitants. Sure. At the time, uh, before the Apollo missions in the 1960s, NASA is working on Project Gemini, which is learning more about what it's like to maneuver in space and carry multiple astronauts. Because as we know, when we went to the moon, we had more than one person, uh, you know, in that vessel. We had a whole team. Yeah, there was... Three well, guys. Three, yeah. Yep. And it's interesting because imagine being the one guy that didn't get, didn't get to, to go, go on, on the moon. moon. But that would suck so That would suck. Much. But without him, the mission would not have been a success. Right. And so every time that we went to the moon and we went um, six times. Well, we went nine times. Six times we put boots on the ground. Like there was, we touched the surface. Yeah, we've um, put... We've put 12 people on the moon. Yeah. yeah, so two persons on each of those missions. But one person had to stay in the command module. He didn't get to leave. Did they, like, pull straws or something? I don't know exactly what they were doing in there. Like, I don't know their exact purpose, but I just know that one of them had to stay behind, which, yeah, that would have been an, to pull the short straw. That would have really sucked. But, yeah, no I mean, you guys still, go, still get to go to the moon, I guess. But you know. Yes, the command module pilot was Michael Collins. Hmm. And if you, that name doesn't sound familiar, that's unfortunate because that's because he didn't stand yeah, on the moon. He didn't hear him with Buzz and when they were so when they were first landing on the moon, they didn't you know they only have so much fuel. So it was, that was a very tense moment back at the command center, and it's really interesting to listen to them, you know, talk and radio saying like you have a lot of people here who are just starting to breathe again. You know, <laughs> they're just finally uh, sighing in relief knowing that you guys have touched down. So okay, so it's Project Gemini. Not only maneuvering in space and carrying multiple astronauts, but living in two weeks for, or living in space for two weeks, because that's another big thing. Like I said, this is going to be a long journey, so we need to be able to make sure that our astronauts can handle this kind of trip. Yeah, this journey. And then a another really big point is that we have to be able to dock with other spacecraft, because if we're going to send a module out to the lunar surface and back, we need to be able to make sure we know how these connections are going to happen. Uh, so that's a big point of Project Gemini. And as I said before, just a little spoiler alert, we did end up finally pulling ahead in the space race right before the finish line, and we did put a man, two men, on the moon, yeah. uh, which kind of signified for many people, or many would consider that would signify the end of the space race, which is nice because what do we do after a nice race? We shake hands with our opponents. So after that started kind of a couple decades of cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union, so there was kind of an extraterrestrial handshake occurring, literally, because during the Apollo-Soyuz or Soyuz test project, an Apollo spacecraft carrying a special docking module was actually able to connect with a Soviet Soyuz spacecraft, and the two countries met in space. That's so cool. And what do scientists do when they meet up with each other? They do research. So for two days, you know, they're hanging out knowing that they just connected two different countries' space modules in space yeah. and do research together. 
And this became essentially a precursor to a very famous, the famous space station where we do research with other countries, Judd. Oh, yeah, the ISS. The ISS or the International Space Station. Okay, Judd, we have just covered a lot about not only space flight, but the space race. Yeah, Are we, we ready to take a little bit of a break? Yeah. All right, we'll be back with you. All right, we're back from the break. It was great. It was a... It was much needed. Yeah. Anyways. I, you guys never see it, but it's always... <laughs> Bro, I got a good gulp of water, you know. And it's a good stretch. The stretch is, I think, the most important part because holding the serious position and talking into this mic, looking deeply in your eyes, is, yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> yeah, my whole body gets tense. Judd, yikes! Can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments in space flight history after the space race? Sure. Because so, a lot of, I mean, the unfortunate thing is, I mean. You can tell me what you think about this, but it's pretty clear that after the space race, things didn't ramp up, certainly. Well, yeah. You know, they definitely plateaued at some point, and it's not, especially, you know, maybe the 2010s, certainly. 2010s were a really rough year uh, for space flight, so certainly we haven't kept up the same uh, public drive, and we haven't kept up the same, you know, appreciation for all the strides that scientists are making in space flight. So it's definitely changed. Right, because, I mean, and a lot of that has to do with uh, that 10-year space race and stuff. We got a lot, the the space programs got a lot of military funding because it was the Cold War and stuff like that. So Yeah, we, that was the, I mean, we were talking about Werner von Braun, like we were saying, like, military leaders wanted to use this to send warheads across the world. Yeah. And then other scientists stepped in and they said, well, let's it, do this. It's a complicated relationship. A lot of people don't like it, um, is between the military and space exploration because a lot of the same um, technologies can be used um, for either good or bad and, and things like that. So, And, you know, that's just developing technology. Yeah. I don't, it's tricky to say, you know, it's, it's important to have it, but at the same time, you know, you'd rather spend that money and time on developing something that you could use for space exploration, something cool and beneficial for all of humanity. Yeah, and I mean... Another prevalent topic when you're talking about the space race is, you know, mad theory. So mutually assured destruction. Yeah. So it's the idea that, like, to some extent, it is necessary to develop nuclear weapons. Right. You know, or at least that's the idea. You know, I don't know what I think about any of it. Personally, I just wish there were no nukes, but it's like, you know, if there's going to be nukes there, you know. We better know. have the best ones. Right. So it's, you know, it's tricky. It's, yeah, definitely an unfortunate subject, but... Another thing that is interesting when you're thinking about, you know, how do we get public opinion about spaceflight to be positive? It's so hard to get people to recognize what benefit they could ever hope to derive yeah. from, you know, this. Besides, you know, there was the beating the Soviet Union thing really early on in the space race. But what is it now? You right. know, I mean, certainly I feel like there are a lot of things that we benefit um, from, you know, space travel. But it's hard to communicate that to a general audience, especially taxpayers. Right. So, like, I guess to – so after the um, Cold War, space exploration, stuff like that kind of slowed down, like you said. And so there was kind of like three main eras um, that we went through uh, for space exploration, things like that. Yeah, so, so big programs that were like – had a big goal in mind. Yeah, a yeah. lot of these were – and the first one was commercial because – 
it was like we didn't have as much funding anymore due to mm -hmm. the war being done and things like that. So we have found funding in new ways, which was through commercial satellites and things like that. Yeah. So that all started with the space shuttle. Because you're saying NASA sends up satellites for companies. They, similar things, like they work together and a lot of the same technologies used. Yeah. And the space shuttle, which NASA developed and things like that, is used or is and still kind of was, was and still kind of is used um, for deploying, repairing, and capturing like old satellites. Right. So um, the cool thing about the shuttle is it can deploy multiple satellites in one flight. So that's cool. pretty sweet. It's got yeah. a huge cargo area. What does really deploying a satellite look like? That's, I guess, something I don't know a lot about, you know? Yeah. You just kind of set it out there and hit the power button or... So the shuttle is moving fast enough to be in like in orbit earth's orbit yep. so it stays in orbit and then it opens its belly essentially and there's like a little arm that kind of pushes the satellite out and places it where it needs to be and then it lets flies go off. and then flies off that's awesome no yeah the the space shuttles are really an interesting uh design because they look kind of like a plane yeah which is cool because if you took the magic school bus and painted it white and gave it a conic nose, yeah. you wouldn't be far from the look of a space shuttle. And the belly part you were just talking about that releases the satellite is pretty cool too because when that opens up, you see kind of how big of a hollow portion they put on the inside. Yeah, the whole purpose of it is to get stuff up to space. And like the reason it looks a lot like a plane and things like that is the space shuttle has to operate you know, in Earth orbit and things like that, in or in Earth atmosphere, I mean. So it needs to operate in the atmosphere effectively, but also once you get out, it needs to operate effectively yeah. as well. So when space shuttles, uh, when space shuttles launch, Judd, am I correct in saying that they are attached to a rocket that gets them out of Earth's orbit, right? It yeah, so burns a crap ton of fuel and shoots them up into space and then it detaches. So there's, well, there's rockets on both. Right. So, like, there's boosters, which are those big, like, the big Conic things. looking things at the bottom. Yeah, right? and then there's, um, so, like, there's the big rocket, I guess, which just helps to get it started. That's the main purpose of that. And then it detaches to lose the mass. And right. And it's just the shuttle. Yep. And sometimes there's extra fuel canisters on the side as well. And so when the space shuttle comes in from reentry, it lands on a runway. Like yeah. at an airport. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Have you ever seen the um, Airbuses that carry those shuttles on top to move yeah. them from one place to another? They're humongous. <laughs> and if you ever think that aerospace engineering in some way, shape, or form seems simple, remember just how many tons that Airbus has to be and the fact that somehow through physics you can just shoot it really fast down the runway and get that thing with another plane essentially strapped to the top of it off the runway. That's incredible. Yeah. It's all about lift, generating lift, like I said. Yeah. Okay, after the space shuttle era, we had another big era, Judd. Yep, that was the International Space Station. So right. that was the next big project that we worked on. So the space shuttles, did they carry components out that build the, uh, built the ISS? I believe so, yes. Yeah. I believe they, they like started to build the components, and then they pushed them out with the yeah. shuttle. They were essentially the extraterrestrial like semi-trucks that were delivering the yeah. pieces of the thing and building it up over time. So the shuttles um, altogether did 135 different missions. Holy so that's a lot. Yeah. It's crazy. And yeah. then there was, I think it also put like 300 and 
35 people into space 55 355 yeah yeah 355 people um were in space due to these shuttles which is a lot because yeah. that number is much less today certainly per like per year on right yeah i mean well and the main missions in space right now are other than the artemis program which is coming up um just those satellite missions because right. satellite technology is really big right now and then also you have spacex doing a lot um, oh, kind certainly, of the new yeah. Frontier of space exploration. So, yeah, I mean, now that I'm now that I'm thinking about it, it's like the privatization is definitely putting a lot of people in space. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's well. There's commercial, and then there's you know the um, privatization stuff where it's like SpaceX versus if the privatization stuff versus Virgin Galactic versus Blue Origin. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, versus Collins Aerospace or Axiom or any of those people. And it's good because having competition with those companies forces them to try to do it Innovate. the cheapest way. Yeah. And, and the, you know, that's the whole point in not having a monopoly and having capitalism is yeah. you want people to compete and have the best idea. Yeah, and it worked really well. And it actually, in some cases, will inspire cooperation between companies because they want to build things that are compatible yeah. or have compatibility. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but the ISS was a really cool... Yeah, back to the ISS. Yeah, back Come to the on. ISS. Hold on. All right. Um, so it was a combination between uh, a lot of countries in Europe, the United States, Russia, Canada, and Japan. Cool. So um, they conduct a lot of research on the ISS. That's its main purpose. Um, a lot of it has to do with the microgravity environment that it um, experienced up there. So yeah. Um, microgravity affects humans in some strange ways and there's been a lot of experiments on that but then there's also some unique uh opportunities to do experiments in a microgravity environment that you can't do here on earth um there's also been things like cancer research and there's i believe been some like they've been trying to grow certain plants and things like so experimenting with that stuff so what could be the benefit of doing these experiments in a microgravity setting versus just on earth just not having gravity. I mean, that's the main yeah. thing. Gravity is, I mean, in some experiments, you could consider it like an outside factor, something that you don't want. And so yeah. if you can get rid of it, then... Yeah, I suppose it affects the movement of, like in biological settings or chemistry, it affects the movement of certain uh, organisms or particles right. and stuff like that. So being able to be in control of that is important. I mean, you can guess how things are going to behave without gravity, but there's only one way to find out, and that's to, you know, go up there and try it. So... Great point. It's it's worked on by multiple countries too. Like it's it's an you know the it's international in the international space <laughs> station. Yeah. Uh, no, which is really cool because just being able to know that it feels like the world is working on yeah space travel. You know, versus just one country. It's just it's a team effort, and it makes it feel more like it's our planet, and we're doing something for our planet. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you may have heard of this, but there's plenty of private companies now that are thinking they want to join in on this kind of space station idea and want to build yeah. their space stations of their own. And we'll get into those later, but specifically the one from blue origin is kind of a wild idea. And one mm. I would only expect from somebody like Jeff Bezos. So <laughs> I, my favorite thing about the ISS is the pictures, <laughs> the, the pictures that the people take yeah. of earth. Yeah. And that's how we know it's not flat. I mean, there you go. Yes. There's yes. your proof. Sorry, but, sorry to break it to you, but <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I I know that when astronauts are interviewed, like the common the common comment they will make is that 
the pictures or the the view once you get up there is just incredible yeah. and the feeling that it instills in you is you know beyond comparison it's surreal yeah would be sweet it would be sweet something i you know we can only hope to be able to experience something like that in our lives but also just knowing that you know i feel like that inspires all of us to just kind of think about it regardless of if we've been up there or not you know yeah yeah listen thank you very much for tuning in today very soon is a big um, surprise a big for you thing. All. yeah um so make sure you stay tuned for that uh if you want to hear basically the the best thing that's ever been put out in podcast history otherwise <laughs> in the meantime make sure to leave a rating for our show uh because we'd love to hear back from you guys Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on University. Peace.